be speaking to us today. That's okay, you can applaud him. Where he goes in the world, he never gets applause. <laughs> so that's a great thing. And those of us that are on the board, we never give him applause either. <laughs> Phil is the uh, president of Eagle Projects International. For those of you that know, I uh, travel, uh, you know, I travel twice a year. I teach internationally, I travel to Mozambique, I travel to India, I travel to Nepal, and I teach classes there. And I travel with Eagle Projects International. Phil is the president of the mission. Very tiny mission, we do work all around the country. So Phil's gonna be in town, I asked him to speak. And on top of that, he's just a great friend. We were talking, we met in 1992, we're best friends. We were missionaries in Germany, and he came over and uh, stopped by on the way and stayed with us. And uh, spent two or three days, and uh, off, off went the friendship. So I just love, I love Phil. I've been on the, his board for 15, 16 years, been traveling all that time, and so thanks for bringing us the thank message you. today. Okay, thank you. Good morning, everybody. I've got a clock down here i got to pay attention to. Um, like he said, my name's Phil Eister, and um, I'm originally from Philadelphia. Um, I now live in Maine, and I'm the husband of Marsha and the father of Sharon, Leonard, Michelle, Kimberly, Graham, Katie, and Bethany. And one of my kids is over here today, and we're driving around the country for the next three weeks, um, preaching in churches and visiting with supporters and that sort of thing. So we're here this morning and uh, appreciate you coming out. My two oldest are um, married. We just had our second grandchild. Um, they're not married to each other. I'm not that much from Maine. <laughs> they're different people. And uh, But we had our uh, second grandchild last week and I'll, a couple weeks I'll be in Indiana and get to see them for the first time. Um, I'm going to be speaking from John 14:6 this morning. Uh, right, right before I was, I came on here, I was over at Sherry's house, and they had me on an oxygen tank. So I came up here, and I'm going to make it through this. And they asked me, what are you going to preach on? I said, Jesus. So John 14, 6 is what we're going to preach on. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there, Jesus is speaking, and he says this. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, I pray that these words that you spoke uh, many years ago would penetrate deeply into our hearts and that we would understand what it means for our lives here today, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And I ask you a question this morning. It's not a trick question, but is there any factual information I could share with you this morning? Any factual information that I could prove to you that would cause you to give up your faith in Christ or Christianity? A lot of times when I ask that question, people will always say if they believe that they're a Christian and they believe in Christ, no, there's nothing that you could share with me. If you ask that question of the Apostle Paul, he would have said, absolutely there is. If you can prove to me that Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then the whole thing blows up. Our faith is in vain. So Paul's faith was grounded in historical fact. And the Bible never asks us to believe in anything that is not historically true. About 10 years ago, a, a 
I don't know whether Jim has said this before, referred to this before, but it was a documentary movie and then it was a book called Soul Searching. A uh, sociologist at the University of North Carolina did a study of young people, I think up through college, all professing Christian, all in churches, asking them about their faith, made a large sample and ended up at the end of a two or three year study determining that the actual faith of uh, the youth in, this was in North America, America and Canada, was actually uh, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, don't cloud over when I say that. I have to take them one at a time. Moralistic, basically a system of right and wrong, good and bad. Therapeutic, it helps me. It makes me happy. It does good things for me. Deism, deism is a, would be a, the technical theological word that would be God is, the illustration is that God is like a clockmaker. He makes the clock, he winds it up, sets it down, and then walks away and lets it run on his own. And he determined that the actual working faith of young people was just that, that they embraced Christianity because it was a system of right and wrongs of which they could manipulate uh, in various ways. It was therapeutic, it made them feel good, and basically that God did not have much to do with their basic life as they lived it from one day to the next. For Paul, that would not be the case. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You're basing your life, think of it, you're basing your temporal and eternal life on some rabbi who lived 2,000 years ago, who a bunch of ragtag disciples followed around for a few years, said he was dead, then a few days later changed their mind, and then went out and started sharing this message. You're basing your life on this 2,000-year-old story that these disciples ended up talking about for years after that, for all their lives, and all of them, except one, um, died a martyr. John, of course, died on the Isle of Patmos. In our day and in our country, one of the things that, it, the, almost the greatest sin that you can commit these days is the sin of intolerance. So we like to feel that we are we are tolerant of other beliefs and other people. Uh, in actuality, when we travel around the world, um, when you get to other places, you realize that we're actually not as tolerant as you think we are. Because in our country, the two things you stay away from in conversations usually with people are politics and religion. Well, you're pretty good when I'm on foreign soil staying away from politics. But you get over to the religion side, and people are very very open, very willing to talk about religion. People talk about religion in almost every country of the world except Western Europe and North America. Religion is just everywhere. People talk about it all the time. And so, but we have this idea that we're tolerant of everybody's belief. And then what happens is, is that when somebody challenges that belief and says, well, why do you believe this? We have backtracked and said, well, Basically, this is what I prefer. So that our faith comes down to a, an idea of this is what I prefer. I prefer Christianity. You prefer Hinduism. You prefer Buddhism, Islam, something like that. And our faith has been, we've reduced our faith 
down to a level of simply a personal preference. In the beginning, sorry folks, it's dry up here. In the beginning, when they began to share this message, it was not a personal, private preference. It was a public proclamation of propositional truth that could be uh, proven and you could take it for granted. One of the stories I like most is the end of Acts. Paul is in front of King Agrippa, Acts 26. Agrippa has heard about this guy, this nut that was a Jew and then became a Christian. He wanted to see him. He brought him in. So Saul, Paul tells him his testimony and goes through the whole thing. When he gets to the end of it, Paul says, King Agrippa, I know that you know that this is true. Because then he says, because none of this was done in a corner. All of this was done out in the open. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows what I'm telling you is the truth. In other words, you didn't need to be in some lodge meeting with a secret handshake to find out about this. The king knew that what he was saying was true. The king at that point knew that the tomb was empty, that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. There's no personal trust in it, but the fact was there. Um, looking around the crowd here, I'm 58 years old, and my, one of my youngest memories is I remember exactly where I was when, uh, when Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. So if I came here today and I tried to persuade you that that event did not happen, there would be a number of you looking out in the crowd that would say, no, it did happen. I remember where I was when that happened. I know that, in fact, that that did happen. Most of you, let's say anybody... 20 years old and, and, and older would remember where you were on 9-11-2001. So that if your kid went to school or something during that time and, or tomorrow and somebody says 9-11-2001 never happened and they came back home and they said, hey, mom and dad, guess what? Guy came to school today and said that never happened. Your parents would say to you, uh, no, son, it did happen. I remember it very clearly. Here's exactly what happened. Luke was writing his gospel only 30 years after Christ was uh, on the earth. These were things that were verifiable. These were things that were uh, historical. Paul, when he said that Christ has risen from the dead, he pronounced this, he proclaimed it, he gave his life for it, and he said, look, if you don't believe me, there are at least 500 people that I remember him appearing to at one time, most of whom are still alive today. So you got at least 250 people right there who are still alive who could have stood up and said, no, this didn't happen. In fact, it did. And so the Bible, Christianity, asks you to believe something that is historically true. It does not ask you to believe anything that is not verifiable. Now, placing your faith and your personal trust in it, that's a different, that's a different story. But Jesus clearly claimed to be God. His disciples and the people that followed him understood him to be saying, I am God. And he was saying something more than I'm just a good teacher or something like that. If Jesus had just gone around and said, be good to be each other, share your toys, stop when somebody's on the side of the road and help them change their tire. If that all, that's all that Jesus would have said, they never would have killed him. They'd have made him citizen of the year at that point. 
He wasn't saying that. He was saying something much more. He was saying, I am the only way to God. Now, you can take, um, you take Christianity and you remove Christ out of Christianity, you remove the resurrection out of Christianity, and the whole thing falls down. You, we have nothing. There is absolutely nothing left. You can remove Buddha out of Buddhism, and you can still have a path to enlightenment. You can remove Krishna out of Hinduism, and there are still millions of other gods that will give you a way to be reincarnated into a higher state. You can even remove Muhammad out of Islam, and Allah, Allah could have given his revelation to somebody else. He didn't. Now, like I said, they'll say he didn't. He only gave it to Muhammad, but he could have given it to anyone. You remove Christ out of Christianity, and it all falls down. Everything that you and I say we believe falls down if it is, it is not historically true. And so, when Jesus says, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, he's saying something more about himself than just, I want you guys to be nice to each other, and I want you guys to help each other, and that sort of thing. When he rose from the dead, and he's walking on the road to Emmaus. He opens the scriptures to the disciples. They don't recognize him at this point. But he opens the scriptures to him and he says, he shows them from the law and the prophets how all the Old Testament points toward him and that he is the way, the truth, and the life. C.S. Lewis, I read about a year or so ago, I read Mere Christianity again. If you've never read that book, you ought to read it. It's a great book. And one of the things he says in there is that Jesus does not give us the option of being just a good person. He does not leave that option open to you. He can either be a liar, he can be simply, he knows he's not God, and he says he is, and he's preaching this, but he knows he's not. Or he can be crazy, he thinks he's God, and he's not, um, and he's still preaching this. I had somebody say to me once, well, how about, could he have been mistaken? So Jesus is out saying, I'm God, and he's really not, but he thinks he is, so... If you're going around saying, I'm God, and you're not, then that's clinical psychosis. You're nuts at that point. So Jesus is not merely saying that he is a good person. He's saying something more than that. And lastly, um, Lewis said, he, or he could be simply a legend, like Camelot or King Arthur or Hobbiton or Area 51 belief or something like that. Jesus Christ is asking you, and the Bible asks you to believe that he is true, that these things that were written down by eyewitnesses at the time actually happened. And if you read your Bible carefully, you'll look in there and you will see the number of times when Peter, John, Luke, they point to the fact that they said, look, we were eyewitnesses of this. This actually happened. Um, uh, these things were not done outside of our sight. We saw them. We touched him. We ate with him. We ate a meal with him after he rose from the dead. These things are true. The Bible says that Christ, that God the Father sent Christ to die for our sins at the exact right time. I thought to myself a few times, why did God pick that time for, to send Christ? Why not wait until we had video, photography, something like that? You could have taken a picture of him. Um, I don't know. The Bible doesn't answer that question. I got an idea, though. We are so 
idolistic that if we had a picture of Jesus, we would make an idol out of it immediately. If there were pictures and videos around, actually, of Jesus, we would make an idol out of it. I mean, we make idols out of anything. We don't have any pictures of Jesus. So what is God asking us to believe? He's asking us to believe in historical fact, that these things are true and that they are worthy of your belief. And when it comes down to it, if you get nothing else that I say today, get this. The Bible is not at first helpful and then true it is at first true and then helpful the gospel is primarily true and then it can become helpful to some individuals in most of the places that i go and that jim travels with me the people that are converted to christianity christianity at that moment to them is not very helpful matter of fact the moment that they come to christ they their lives get immediately, immensely worse. And I wrote in my book a number of stories about people that, have, uh, that I've encountered overseas that we work with and their stories of how they uh, came to Christ and what happened to them. There's the incredible hardship that um, people endure for Christ. Uh, one of the comes from um, um, Nepal, one of the... There's a tribe there in southern Nepal that had no believers in it. The first believer, his 11-year-old daughter was sick, and she was going to die, and he'd took her, taken her to the, all the witch doctors, and nothing had happened. And so finally somebody said, there's a western doctor down the mountain, down on the road that goes down to India. Take, him down, take her down there. So he takes her down the mountain. It's a day walk or something. He goes down there, and gives her to the doctor. The doctor looks at him. He does something. He says, well, there's not a whole lot I can do for her. I forget exactly what the, the ailment was. But then he says, not a whole lot I can do for her other than pray. So I'm going to pray. So he lays hands on the girl and he prays. Nothing happens then. Takes his daughter back up to the village. Two days later, she's healed. He looks at her and he goes, she's healed. So he goes back down the mountain, takes the daughter back to the guy. And he says, who did you pray to that healed my daughter and so he shares the gospel with this guy so the guy takes the gospel message then he goes back up to the village he starts sharing it with everybody else now nobody in this tribe there are tens and tens of thousands of people in this tribe nobody in this tribe is a believer yet has ever been a believer yet has ever heard of christianity he begins to share this message what do you think happens you think they welcome him and say oh great something new to believe in absolutely not they send him to jail he's in jail three years he is they take him at, on three separate occasions out into the jungle. They strap him up between two trees, and they're beating him. And all they're asking him to do is renounce his faith in Jesus Christ. He never does it. At the end of three years, finally the police and the people give up. They throw up their hands. They say, all right, fine, go ahead and believe what you want to believe. In that tribe now, there are at least 10,000 believers in that tribe off of that one guy. He's still alive today. If you went over there, I could take you up in the mountains. You could go um, meet this guy. What happened? Something real happened. And the moment his life, it, Christianity to him wasn't helpful at first. It was amazingly true. It was accurate. He placed his faith and his trust in that. And then his life got immediately worse. And all the places that we go around the world, we find that people who place their faith and trust in Christ, in many cases, their lives do not get better they get infinitely worse jim and i 
have gone to South India a number of times. And then the, one of the cities where we go is called uh, Madurai. And I was down there at my friend's house one night. And there was a book in his library on the history of missions in Madurai. Pull this thing down. It's an old book, 100 and some years old. I open it up. I start to read through this thing. And it's a history of this group who were mostly Presbyterians, almost all of them from around Albany, New York, that came over to Madurai in the 1850s or 60s, something like that. They began to share the gospel, and churches began to form, and down in South India, there's still churches that are there that were started um, at that point. I looked at the back of the book, and in the back of the book, there's an appendix, and that was the most fascinating part of the whole book, because in the back of the book was every uh, missionary that came from New York over to Madurai and ministered there. I began to read through the thing, and it had their name, it had their birth date, the day they left, the date they left New York, the date they arrived in Madurai, and then the date that they died. As I began to look down through the first 40, 50, 60 names, as I'm flipping through the pages, I'm realizing these people are not living more than a year. They're dying. Some of them on the boat on the way over, one after the other. These people are just dying. They come over to do what? To share the gospel with these pieces. And it's not until 20 or 30 years later that you, began to, you begin to see the, the missionaries that are coming. They're actually living for 5, 10 years or more. Babies are born, die. I mean, what would make somebody do that? There's no pictures. These days, you know, without a laser light show and sound and everything else, we hardly believe anything. These are people that are getting on a boat, going over to a place they'd never heard of before, simply because somebody wrote a letter back and said, you know, Sister Mary died, send somebody else. So they get up, they get on the boat, they go over and take her place. One after the other. They keep coming and they keep dying. What? I looked at that thing, I stayed up a lot of the night looking at that list, down through the names of that list. What would cause these people? They've got no photos, all they've got is letters. Some of the letters are a year old by the time they get back to New York. So-and-so died, send somebody else. What would do that? One of the um, countries that we now work in is uh, Myanmar, which is formerly uh, Burma. And Myanmar has the distinction of being the place that the first American uh, missionary went. And his name was Adoniram Judson. I don't know if you... That name rings a bell with anybody. In the early 1800s, um, around 1806 or something, he looked at the world, and the only people that were sending missionaries was the London Mission Society, and they were sending people on uh, East India Company boats over to the coastlands. There were no American missionaries at this point. There were no sending agencies. There was nothing. And he decided that he was going to go take the gospel to Burma. Nobody had ever gone to Burma before. Nobody had ever been there before. No missionaries had ever been there before. It was basically a fiefdom that was run by, it was basically gangs that were spread out in tribal areas. It was incredibly dangerous. Disease rampant. And he decides he's going to go over there and preach the gospel to these people. When I first went over to the country about eight years ago, it was still under the military junta that lost control in 2012. And uh, this is a number of years before that. And I was standing there in this little church, and I picked up one of their Bibles, and I 
opened it up, and in the front of the Bible, it is the same translation that Adoniram Judson did that he finished in 1836. They're still using the Bible that he translated. I could tell you the stories of his life. We're going back for a project there in November, and I've been reading a a book about his life, and just incredible hardship that they went through. Loss of children, lived through three wives, they all died, kids died, babies died, all to give these people uh, the gospel. Spent seven years there, had one convert that who then recanted that he was a Christian when faced with persecution. He got kicked out of the country, then he came back, a couple more, and within uh, like 13 years, he had about uh, seven or eight converts. And from there, he ended up uh, translating the Bible and by the time he died. In one of his biographies, I'm going to close with this. Before he was, he was part of the, a group of seven people at Andover College in Massachusetts that went out into a field under a, and it began to rain. It's called the Haystack Meeting, that they, these guys went out there and began to pray for missions. And he was, Adonai Judson was one of these people. And it was at that point he felt God was calling him to um, missions. He was 19 or so at the time. About three weeks later, he meets this woman, Anne Hazeltine, and he immediately falls in love. And so he's now p- pitting his desire to go on a missions and his love for this Anne um, girl. They called her Nancy, but her, her legal name was Anne. Before he goes, he wants to get married. And so he writes to her father this letter. I'll end with this. He says, I now, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring. This would have been, um, this would have been 1812. Early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death, and died for her, uh, and that you will consent to this for the sake of him, Christ, who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, sir, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, For the sake of Zion, for the glory of God, can you consent to all this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Father read that letter. He turned to Anne and he said, it's up to you if you want to do it. And she said, yes, I'll go. They went. And I think she lived about 13 years and then passed away after losing a couple kids. What would cause somebody to do that? A preference? Just a personal preference? Mm -mm. It would be a propositional message, public. Something that's true. Something that could not be denied. That Christ was the way, the truth, and the life. There was no other way to the Father except through him. And you and I now in 2015, we sit here with all of the things around us that 
make our lives easier and those sort of things. One thing has not changed in 200 years from when he went to now, and that is, is that the information must be passed from one person to another to share the gospel. Electronically, reading, somehow, somebody has got to get the message to these people. That's what we try to do in um, our ministry, and that's what you and I are called to do. And we're not called to believe something that's not true. We're called to believe something that is historically verifiable, and that's what God asks you and I to do. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for Christ who told us clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Father, for all of us that are gathered here today, I pray that you would fill us with the assurance that we know you, or if we don't, fill us with a desire to know you and to know the faith that you have called us to. Father, for your people that are ministering in other cultures and other countries um, in dangerous places, I ask for your protection over them and for the place people that work in our ministry that we work with, we ask for your provision and protection for them. Father, we thank you for this meeting this morning. We look forward uh, to our life with you, and I pray that this message would change our hearts in solidifying our faith in you. In Christ's name, amen.